Robert Fulford is a Toronto author, journalist, broadcaster and editor. He writes a weekly column for the National Post and is a frequent contributor to Toronto Life, Canadian Art and CBC Radio and Television. His books include Best Seat in the House, Memoirs of a Lucky Man, Accidental City, The Transformation of Toronto and Toronto Discovered. We met recently at his home in Toronto to talk both about his distinguished career as a critic and evaluative criticism in the Canadian canon. When I first emailed you, I suggested evaluative criticism. Yeah. I know that's been a flogged horse. I think so, yeah. And yet here, looking at the literary critical mass of work in Canadian history, one thing that really does strike me is that there is such a lack of evaluative criticism in yeah. the country, and there have been a variety of different reasons put forward as to why, yeah. but Northrop Fry being central to that question. That's right. Still, I'm, I've just written a piece calling for someone to write, uh, you know, how Somerset Maugham did his 10 greatest yeah, novels. That's right. I think we need more of that. I, I like that kind of thing too. I admire it because it gives us structure to what goes on. Then you can be against that guy. And you can try and come up with a better argument, and if you can't, well... And dislodge this guy. Just prove one of his guys is, is no good. Whatever. Andrew Saracen, in film criticism, he wrote a whole book called The American Cinema. And the whole book was really long lists of people he had to take seriously. Clement Greenberg was my favorite art critic because, first of all, he had a very, very reasoned approach to painting, but he felt he knew exactly what was the mainstream. He said, this is the mainstream. If you don't want to swim in it, it's okay. Just don't bother me. This is the mainstream. And it was cubism, and it was abstract expressionism, and a few other things. And then there was a post-painterly abstraction. So he had it all listed, all worked out. And so there was a period of maybe 10 years, a lot of people just followed him and took him seriously. Because and of his confidence. Because of his confidence, yeah. yes, exactly. Serene confidence, you know. But then after a while, people began chipping away on Still, it did a great deal for art criticism, for art discussion, and so on. I agree with that entirely. It just strikes me as so strange, the question of who we are. Yeah. If someone confidently came forward and said, these are the great works, this is the Canadian canon, and here's why, in a significant way, then, as you said, that stands as a position that can then be argued with. Yeah. Right. And that's how a canon is built. But I don't even think there's a Canadian canon, really. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of talk about it anyway. There's a lot of people who, who say it should, it should be in it, this should be out of it, and so on. But the thing to me, I, I, I'm a journalist. I was a journalist uh, when I was 16 years old, and I'm a journalist now that I'm 77 years old. I've been above all the journalists. And I want to tell you what's important. I don't want to tell you this is better than that. I don't want to tell you, forget this. Leave that out. I don't want to tell that. As I say, I admire it when people, Saras or Greenberg does it, uh, because it gives a structure to things. My main interest has been to say, this is interesting. You've got to know about this. When Leonard Cohen wrote Beautiful Losers, I hated that book. And I wrote three columns about it over the next two weeks, discussing it. I didn't say I liked it. I didn't say I hated it. I did hate it. I think I did hate it, in retrospect. But I wrote three columns over the next two weeks. And when I was talking to Leonard, he said, well... Whatever you think of my book, you're certainly doing me a lot of good because I'm just saying this is important. You have to know about this. Yeah. Pay attention. And that's it's one of the key roles of a critic. It's absolutely central. Absolutely yeah. central. Bring back, keep bringing back the things that are, that are central. Bring them back to the focus. Find the center of your subject and keep focusing on it. 
and the other things fall away. Just the mere fact that you're paying attention to it that's tells important. people that's important. that yeah. you think it has value. Yeah, and it should be discussed, certainly. You don't have to say this is the greatest ever. Or I do think, though, that if you talk about a great novel, there are criteria that you personally yeah. have developed to determine why that is worth talking about. I think many times, though, a great novel, a great play, establishes a new set of rules. And you can no longer say, well... Stendhal did it this way, you know. I mean, in many cases, great novelists write books, construct whole careers they never intended to. Even they didn't know what the rules were. Philip Roth is a classic case. Well, he's the best American novelist of today, I think. He said at some point, about 10 or 15 years ago, I had no idea I was a Jewish novelist. And if you look at the first book, the first book is very Jewish. And the next two books are not at all Jewish. Or hardly at all. Masturbation. That's four or five, four or five later. Yeah, anyway. okay. Four or five books later, anyway. Goodbye, Columbus is a very much a Jewish community. But then there's uh, once she was good, and then doesn't seem to have any Jewish qualities. Ever. And he imagined he was just part of. He was not going to be no more Jewish than Henry James was, what Presbyterian or whatever the hell he was. Or but he's, he's discovered I'm constantly brought back to this subject, which I can't leave alone. It doesn't leave me alone. I don't leave it alone. So all I'm saying is that even he could not have told you the proper, when he set it to work, he had no idea what standards should be applied to Philip Roth. If he couldn't do it, I know he couldn't. If he couldn't do it, then it's very hard for most of us, for someone who doesn't write the books, but writes about them, it's hard for them. Yes, but we've got a limited time on Earth. Yeah, that's true. And we don't want to waste it. So what we want is writing about books. I want to tell you what's important, what will have meaning in your life, and also what will please you. To do that, you basically have to tell me what pleases you. Yeah, that's right. And so what does it please you? Well, uh, comedy, strong sense of comedy. That's very important to me. A strong sense of rootedness. At the beginning, I could have told Roth, you have to be somewhere. I might have told him that. Of course, he wouldn't have listened anyway, but he was intending not to listen. The one thing I wouldn't have said for sure was, your novels have to take place within a certain sphere not necessarily geographic sphere, but mental sphere. There has to be a shape within which you can operate. You can't have the universe. You can't have the world. You can only have this set of ideals, a geographic place, perhaps, a religious place, perhaps. Something what that the reader can... Well, no, it's something that you and yourself can develop and can move on from one to... Every book does not have to be written from a tabula rasa point of view. You go on... And on. It's an evo- evolution. And this applies to Conrad as much as it applies to Henry James, as it applies to Dickens, or applies as much today to uh, Dave Akers or something like that as it did to uh, Mark Twain. There's a sensibility. You've only got one. Your sensibility is formed in a certain your period, in a certain place, by certain people. It's only going to happen to you once. You can only be an adolescent once. It's almost like finding out what your passion is. Once you've found you it, are. and you're you comfortable your with it, it's you, and that is transmitted That's to the right. reader then. That's that right. genuine... And that, this is the classic case with Rich. You know, he, he wrote three books, uh, and then he wrote uh, Daddy Kravitz. And yeah. he knew it by the time he was through with it. That book, that was it. It had to be all about him. Now, I did a few other things. Of course, a number of things, but the central point was... He, he had a locale. He had a... Small. Very small. Yeah. yeah. Tiny. And he had to have a, a way of thinking, an, an intellectual perspective, a tone. He had to have a, a, a sense of... had to realize what he thought was funny on paper. Mm. And he had to keep doing that sometimes 15 or 20 times to write a chapter to make it come out. 
so comedy just flows. He had to do all that. It was his truth, in other words. His kind of truth, that his and his kind of comedy, which was another way, is his kind of truth. What you see is funny is often the most true. It's funny. I've just come from talking to A. L. Kennedy, who's a stand-up comedian as well as a an honored Writer. novelist. Yeah. yeah. And the fact that sadness and humor are wedded. Yeah. When you look at Dickens, you realize at a certain point he found out what was funny. I mean, he had a very depressing start to his life, but then he realized what was funny. Who was funny? Mm-hmm. And there was Jane Austen. I always say she's she's the bitchiest writer in the world. She's actually a writer beloved by people who aren't really as nice as they like to appear, such as Miss Alfar or many other people. I just read Persuasion the other day, and I was thinking, this is horrible, cruel, and hilarious. It's all about the nicest people in the world. Well, it's, it's deflating their egos and their surfaces. and So humor, sort of a genuine humor, is, yeah. is one of your criteria. Yeah. What so else? I think that I quickened to a book when I realized that something is at stake besides the quality of the book. Something moving behind it, something historical, cultural, moral, whatever. Something is behind it. And then I follow up. Trilling and uh, Edmund Wilson, all sorts of writers who sort of educated me through their books. I'd say those are two big, two important things. You want to ask what is at stake, and you want to ask where is the comedy. And of course, beyond that, it's all energy, style, and the ability to do it over and over again. Approach the same material again and again until it, until it comes out right. I find that with Richner. Uh, he's one writer I've been with while well, he's been working on his books. And you realize there are times when he's 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 looking at deep depression, and then there are times when he was just floating floating around, you know. And it all had to do with whether he, he cracked some kernel of the book. And Phil Broth is interesting because a lot of Portman's complaint could have been done as stand-up comedy. Mm-hmm. If he just stood up in a club and talked that way, probably many words changed. It would have worked. And in fact, one of his best friends, Theodore Solitarov said that Philip Roth was deeply influenced by Lenny Bruce. Because once Lenny Bruce said certain things, it was like a revelation. It was sort of like, can you say that? Can you say it? Once he said that, it was all right to That was as if he was giving permission. He started it. He started something. something. It's like saying cocksucker on television. Yeah, that's you know, right. Shit, piss, fuck, whatever. Yeah. There's the initial shock value, and then it's not such a big deal anymore, I suppose. That's right. So you're suggesting what? I was just saying that how he found his sense of humor. Later on, that particular comedy slipped away from Roth and he got deeper into other other subjects. But you, you see it every once in a while. He wheels it up again. It became the center of his books for a little while, and then it became part of his repertoire. Yeah, there's some funny stuff about writers and how writers will rape and pillage their own families for uh, Absolutely, all yeah. the best stuff. Yeah. I think there are very few writers who don't do something like that. Good writers, solid writers. So you'd say those are the, those key, are the key things to look for. I, mind you, I can be bowled over by something totally different. Humorless, straight ahead. Yeah, I'm thinking of Madame Bovary. That's not, not a funny book. Brilliant book. Oh, yeah. Not, not much comedy there, but it's one hell of a piece of work. Most of the things that have appealed to me are likely to appeal to me, but sometimes there are, there are things in literature which don't contain any of those qualities and yet seem very important to me. We've talked about bringing important books 
that will add meaning to the lives of the readers and yeah. enriching their lives, bringing attention to the books. What else? You as a critic, what have you tried to do over the last half century or more? <laughs> I started the daily column, books column in the Star in 59. So okay. what year is this? <laughs> Jesus. Well, one thing I, I worried about a little bit and then realized I couldn't worry about it was this. I should have put it. Well, let me go around another way. I think uh, critics, people writing about the arts in general, shouldn't worry about being accused of having a bee in their bonnet, being an obsessive or writing too much on one subject. Uh, I think I was a little bit thinking, I need to be a little more general in these. You know, I need to be a little more, a little broader in my thinking. This is what you felt you had to be? That's what I was thinking. I was thinking, well, I was writing a daily column in the start. It was only a daily column in books in Canada. Putting that in perspective, we, we'll get maybe three or four columns a week if we're lucky. Now, you were doing one every single day, specifically yeah, focusing... Not a, not, a, not a new book every day. Actually, I was art columnist of the star, too. So Thursday afternoon, now this is another era, but on Thursday afternoon you could, in four hours, you could see all the shows that had opened in Toronto. Uh Today, of course, it'd take you a whole week uh, and you wouldn't see them all. However, however, uh, my point is, unless you you stuck to very short books, you couldn't do five books a week. Often one of them, one of the columns would be strictly an interview. Another column would be news and notes from all over or whatever. A roundup. Kind of. yeah. yeah, sometimes it would be the appearance of a, of a paperback of, of a book that had come out six years ago when I read it first. And every week certainly there would be one very big book, you know, a Sinclair Lewis biography, a big thick biography, and then probably a couple of short novels or whatever. You felt that you had to sort of spread it around? I think that, that I was trying to be more like a, a book section as if I was writing a whole yeah. section. Mm. And after a while, I, I began to realize that there, there are things that really, really interest me. Those are things you probably wrote the best about. Yeah, absolutely. And when they failed, then the failure of that book was important. When they succeeded, the success of that book was important. By implication, I was saying, this is a rather important thing we're doing here. Brian Moore was one of the most wonderful novelists I ever, I ever read. I read all his books. I read several of them more than once. And I've talked about him, and I've interviewed him. I gave the speech on him uh, when he was honored by the Harborfront uh, 10 and 12 years ago. So I, I've been deeply involved in him. But I, I have been able to say, when I said this is his best book, or this is the book in which he sums everything up, I was able to write, write with some passion. And some knowledge, obviously. Too. Obviously, yeah. And when he failed, or when, he, when I didn't see the point of it, or when I had to admit that it was, it was not within his range. He had come up with an idea, a fantasy for example. Mm. He wasn't very good on fantasy. He wanted to try it, I suppose, just experiment. Yeah. But yeah. So the point you're making then is that you wish you had allowed yourself to focus more on the things that you were passionate about as opposed to trying to be something to everyone. Yeah, but I got on this pretty quickly, though. It was just in the early stages. Uh, like uh, I was very, very interested in American writing. Several people said to me, you know, they're, they're 
books written in countries other than the United States, you know, and things like that. Like Canada. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was very interested in that, but I, by all means, but I had so few books by comparison. I reviewed almost every book in English in it's Canada. Something. It's something to be able to say that. I don't know if that's a, a reflection of the poverty of the, oh, it was the a talent. Very, it wasn't a poverty of talent so much as, well, it was just an undeveloped literary community. There were a whole group of people trying to make a literary community in this country, you know. Uh, Weaver, all the people in the Tamarack, but also Woodcock and uh, a lot of people. Oh my God, uh, yeah, Ross, who who uh, edited the New Canadian Library. Those people were trying to formulate a structure, a, a way of collecting the books of Canada, encouraging the more books to be written. And McClellan, by the way, had a lot to do with that. He was ready to go to really throw his energy into a book that he felt thought was important. He, sometimes he didn't even think it was important. He just thought it was likely to be important when the guy wrote three more books. You know, McCullough said, I don't publish uh, books, I publish authors. And I think uh, that was a pretty sensible point of view for him. From a business standpoint, perhaps, but there's a, the controversy between the whole thing about biography and should it have any impact on reading the work Once itself. Once you go to read the work, but he had to produce the work for you to decide that kind of thing. That kind of thing was is irrelevant if you haven't got the books. And if you reach a po- the point where you realize the purity of the book is what matters most, the pure value of the book itself matters, that's okay. There are 12 books there. You could discard 10 of them and find the two masterpieces, but McClellan had to get them in print. He had to make enough money to keep doing that. Yeah, and all he had to start with just pages of type manuscript and somehow turn that into something that was, first of all, printed, edited and printed, secondly, distributed, and thirdly, considered, thought about, noticed. Sold and, and read. Read he, he did that beautifully with a dozen novelists, I suppose, but certainly Leonard Cohen, certainly Richler, certainly Moore, and, and uh, absolutely Margaret Lawrence. He was just behind her every inch, panning away. When are you having it? When are you giving me? I mean, she was giving up all the time. Mm-hmm. And he was saying, when are you giving me the novel you promised? And he would write a ten hectoring and praising letters for every book that she uh, <laughs> Again, getting back to your role, it's akin to what he was doing. He was searching for talent, and he was presenting it to the population. Once he'd done that, then did you see it as your job to tell the people why they should be reading it? Well, yes. First of all, find it is really interesting, or is he killed himself again, as he certainly did? Mm-hmm. Is there something there? That was the first thing you have to say to mm-hmm. if you're a critic. Do you and withhold then, saying that there isn't something there, or do you say there isn't something there? Oh, I think you should be willing to say there's not, not much there. Mind you, you're very, very biased in favor of there being something there. You want something, something there because you want to write about it. Yeah, exactly. Not because you want to uh, improve Canadian literature, because you want to write about it. At a certain point, as any journalist, you become very selfish after a while. You're selfish about what you're giving the readers, you're selfish about what you're spending your time on. You want it to be, you want to be doing something important. You want to be something central. Because the, the mere fact that you are writing about something that's important means that in 50 years, your writing about that important thing will also be important. I, I don't really think of this term. I really think of this year. I'm thinking of whether people are going to find something to read uh, that's valuable, whether you can recommend things to people, but. Above all, the important thing that matters is not your judgment, in my opinion, not your final judgment. It's what you have to say about it. Of course, of every book review, you've got to say, 
pick it up or don't pick it up. Yeah, yeah. kind of thing. You know? yeah. But that's the least important thing. I mean, probably 100 people in the university, university professors living within a mile of where we are right now could tell you that in a second. But as a, as a journalist and a critic, you've got to say, why is it interesting? Where does it come from? What does it represent? What does it connect to? What does it say about this era we're living in? What does it speak to? And what is at stake? All of those things are much more important than whether I personally had a good time reading this book. <laughs> you know, this is. This but okay, so let's go to what is at stake. What do you mean by that? Well, does it say something that matters about its subject? Dr. Johnson had something to say about is the book useful to me specifically? Is it going to change my life? Is that what you mean by what's at stake? No, I, I mean, what I mean is, is, is the theme of, of the book such that it reverberates beyond beyond this one incident. There's a little incident in the book. The whole book is maybe an incident. But what to, what is at stake in the implications in the storyline, in the thematic material, in the uh, social description, all these things, in what way does it work? In what way does the book matter? Uh, will it matter to the reader? Will it matter to 100 readers or 100,000 or a million, or whatever, that kind of thing. Will it matter? Will it matter, again though, in terms of how they live their life? Or, or how, they, how they see the world, or how they understand. It might change the way they might, see the world, or right, interact right. with their right. wife, or whatever it might yeah, be. Yeah. That means it matters to them, yeah. as it will affect their life. That's right. I think, go back to Jane Austen, I think you cannot read right through her and not be affected in your way, the way you think of money, mm-hmm. relatives, class, class, mm-hmm. uh, and that horrible business of wanting to be important or wanting to be wanting to be respected. The guy who, in persuasion, the book opens with the guy who the only is only one book he ever reads. It's a book on the baronets. He reads it always because he's in it, and uh, <laughs> and he wants to know. It comes out every three years or something where the other baronet all the other barons of England what's happened to them yeah. some have died some who has succeeded them this is what interests him because it's more vital than any other thing you can read a book about so why should he read any other books mm. that's all implied in about one page you know right. but that begins the, the, the book and uh, you realize you're dealing with an incredibly vicious person who could not even dream of knowing he was vicious and a, a class of, of people that are quite like that. Well, anyway, a, a class of people who, who are tempted to be like that, mm-hmm. and some of them are in fact, they in fact go down the, so far down the line they become monsters like this guy is, and other people are just, perhaps Jane Austen herself, mm-hmm. have a, an ironic view of all this, can, can see it put it in perspective. This is what J.M. Kotsia does with his fiction. He, he uses his fiction as criticism. Of life. So, of life, but also of various literary uh, right. devices. Well, that's true. Yeah. So he'll attack biography, for example, in yeah. his latest in his latest novel. Yeah. So are you suggesting then that novels that critique society or well, when I say what's at economics? Stake, well, when I say what's at stake, I don't mean it has to be something part of a list of social questions I've brought up. An ideal novel might make me think about a a social question I've barely heard of before. Without that interfering with the narrative, I would assume. Yeah. The question is, what is at stake in that book? What is it, does it matter? 
that's something you have to bear in mind. It's not the only thing. There are many other things you have to bear in mind. When you think of Margaret Lawrence's books, you're dealing there with things that are so deeply rooted in the human personality. She deals with parents and children, husbands and wives, and friends and enemies and all those things. And her work is never without a, a thrusting moral perspective, which is what was at stake in that uh, in that book. And I think the same would be true of Alice Munro. On the other hand, Mavis Galan is a brilliant, brilliant writer, and half the time you don't know what's at stake. She's a great writer. She's got style beyond style. And you know, at times you think, what was at stake there? Why would, why was she telling me all that? And of course, you may uh, they have trouble figuring that out, but uh, maybe she's keeping it a secret sometimes. But with Alice Munro, it's pretty clear. With Mavis Galant, it's that's another another ambiguity. Yeah, there's much more ambiguity. And uh, she's an ambiguous writer. She would not necessarily like it if I was able to say, like, this is what this is what matters. That's another writer I've read that had this incredible uh, good luck to be coterminous with or whatever. And yes, yes. I followed her when I was twelve or thirteen years old and she was a movie critic of the Montreal Herald. And now she's in her mid-80s. She's like a ten, eight or ten years older than I am. I remember that name on the top of the weekly movie reviews in the Montreal Herald, which was like a Sunday supplement. She did a lot of reporting for them, but she did this movie thing for a while. And somehow, I was just learning about movies, and I was beginning of my teenage life. And anyway, I read her every week. Well, then, Pauline Kale. Well, that was quite a bit later. But then Mavis Galant, ten a year, I didn't hear for her. For all I knew, she could have died. Seven or eight years she was gone, I picked up the New Yorker and I was in there again. Oh my God! And then the fact that I realized, oh, it must be somebody, uh, same person, same uh, name, could happen. A coincidence, but then I guess it was a story about Montreal. I guess it must be the same person. Anyway, I read every word she wrote from that. But day. life may have gotten in the way she, for 10 years. She may have, things may have happened. Oh, yes, sure. T.S. Eliot once famously talked about the fact that the best critics are the ones that write the poetry, write the novels. Yeah. What do you think about that? I don't think it's, it's necessarily true. Certainly, he's got something in mind there, and it's a wonderful quality that he has, that in that he is standing in the middle of a tradition and trying to describe that tradition. And he's the latest example of that tradition. And uh, he looks back on... Uh, beyond the romantics and back to the era of John Donne, for example. He's trying, first of all, the view, he's trying to find his own place within that, within that tradition. And having found it, he then knows why he wants to be in that tradition, and then he knows that takes him into reading John Donne or whoever it is. So he has that all through his life. And it's a wonderful uh, kind of criticism. But uh, there are many critics who have either not written poetry or fiction, or have written it Edmund Wilson just gave, gave it one, one shot. Say, I was just going to say, Edmund Wilson is a classic case. He was a, a wonderful critic in about four or five different ways in his life. A great journalist. He wasn't much as a fiction writer. I'm thinking of James Wood, too. He's written yeah. one novel as yeah. well. I don't even like the sound of that. Even the people who like it, I don't when they rec- I haven't read it, but I've read four or five reviews in which they tell me how good it is, and I, it sounds bad to me, but anyway... But I love James Wood. I think he's wonderful. Uh, yeah. smart. Like yes. That. He uses metaphors better than most of the writers that he critiques, I think. The last time I saw Paul Bellow, he was seeing James Wood the next day in Boston. He was in Toronto. And I said, 
Would you tell him I hate him? I just... Uh, <laughs> he understood why. Talking of Wood, he mentioned not that long ago that it was much more difficult for him to write a, a negative review now because of the fact that he he's in the same yeah. circles as those yeah. that he reviewed. Given the size of the pond in Canada, has that thwarted your honest appraisal? of? I hope not. On the other hand, it does require some... I don't know, delicate. People obviously don't like you when you don't like the novel. It's like a personal attack sometimes when you say this novel is inadequate. I got a, an email two days ago from Paul Almond, who was a, a filmmaker in the 1960s, and uh, he started off with praise, wonderful praise, for my piece about uh, Douglas Campbell in the beginning of Stratford, which I wrote in the Post a couple of weeks ago. I hadn't heard from him since the 60s or maybe the 70s. And he said, oh, Bob, you, you, you're the greatest obit writer in the world. There's a wonderful piece. That's terrific. And then the next paragraph was, I know you hate me. <laughs> and actually, I, I think I wrote one piece negative. In those all those years. <laughs> so I wrote back and I said, I don't think I ever hated your work, but I may have been critical of the act of the heart. That was the name of this famous movie he made I said uh, I may have been critical of this but I never felt that uh, your work lacked integrity anyway he wrote back again and said well how you could not like act of the heart I don't know when everyone must love it everyone should love it thank you see it again you won't let go I just nobody liked it (laughs) (laughs) but but anyway the thing is that getting on for half a a century since he (laughs) well uh I was thinking of uh, something about the Diviners. I was Margaret Lawrence's, I guess I was maybe your biggest fan as far as, far as journalistic critics are concerned. And then the, the Diviners came along. Now, CBC asked me to interview her on radio. I, I knew I was probably reading this book, reading the book, and I reviewed her. And I interviewed her on the CBC. I didn't like the book. And I did not make my interview at all about the fact that I didn't like the book. In fact, I didn't say anything like the book. And I didn't want to say that because I wanted to get the best possible. I'm, I don't think when you're doing interviews, you should be telling people that your, your book is not very good. or whatever. You should try to get the best words you can out of Margaret Lawrence. That was my assignment. And we were only going to have 20 minutes on the air. And that was what I wanted. Where the hell did this come from? Why did she do this? That was what I wanted to do. Two days after the interview appeared, my review of her book appeared. And she told someone at McClellan Stewart she was very bitter with me. For what? Because I didn't say so when I interviewed her. Well, you weren't honest. Well, it wasn't honest. An honest interview should have started off, I don't like this book at all, so why'd you write such crap? I'm not interested in that. There's a certain amount of respectfulness that's there. That's right. I want to bring her out. Maybe that would have brought her out. Maybe she would have defended the book. Maybe she did very well on that occasion. Anyway, my point is that that, that kind of thing you run into all the time. And if, if Margaret Lawrence happens to be your best friend, if you've really become very close to her, it's going to be hard to deal with. Uh, so I don't have any novelists who are considered to be my best friend. Although I'm uh, very close to some people who are very, who are maybe the best friend of somebody, certain people, that's okay. But my point is that you cannot pretend to like books you don't like. Are you silent then? No, I, you... I, I, for instance, I wrote negatively about Richler, about Moore about, uh, as I say, about Lawrence, 
Positively and negatively, obviously. Yeah, well, yeah. absolutely. wouldn't matter if I was always writing about how bad they were. Do you think there's been enough honest appraisal well, of Well, I'll books? tell you, there is some amount of corruption deep in the heart of all critics, I think, somewhere. I just confessed a few minutes ago one of my biases, which is I want it to be good because I want to be able to tell people how good it is and tell them all the virtues of this book, which I have discovered, but they haven't, they don't know about it yet. To show them how smart you are. No, just to, to make my review into something valuable and readable and something that will do the job. You know, I'm not interested in appearing smart. I'm interested in writing a good article. By implication, uh, someone writes a good article is smart, I guess, but I'm not trying to exhibit uh, knowledge. You, want to, say, you want, want to test yourself against the best metal that's there and, and come up to that challenge? I, I want to write a good good material. I want to write good articles, good good columns, articles, whatever. That's what I want. And I have certain standards and I try to live up to them. So I, that's why I say I confess that's a corruption of mine. Your corruption is your dedication to uh, to excellence? How's no, that occur? The corruption is to, is you're opening a book and very much hoping it, it will be good because if it's, if it's really weak, the article won't matter much or won't because well, there's not enough meat to, to yeah, engage with? Particularly, particularly if the writer's well known. Yeah, you don't want to harm them. Well, no, it's not that. I mean, you certainly don't want to harm them uh, pointlessly. But the fact is, you can't pick up a book by, by a, a, an unknown writer and then to, uh, spend uh, 700 words telling the world that's of no value. Because the world isn't going to hear of it anyway. So the last thing they want to hear about is another book of no value has appeared. And Robert Fulford says so in the paper. <laughs> I'm not going to buy it anyway. I wasn't going to buy it. I wasn't yeah. even going to hear it, but yeah. so I wasn't even going to hear it. Why is he wasting my time? Why is he wasting my time? Okay. So my, my bias is towards a, a book that will, will lead to an interesting article. Engaging. The book doesn't need to be perfect. It doesn't need to be a masterpiece. It needs to have enough of quality in it that you can write about it with admiration and take it seriously. That's a kind of a corruption in a way because it means you, you're starting out perhaps a eager, perhaps a little too eager sometimes and, and that can lead you into kidding yourself about a book. I suppose it could. But there is a, the, another corruption which is some people think they, they will make themselves uh, more uh, accommodating to their friends if they praise their books or whatever, make themselves more engaging, make themselves more likable or lovable. Popular, yeah. Whatever. Uh, that's the corruption. And, and people often criticize the book pages for being full of uh, puffery. And sometimes that is justification. I would say that's not by any means the, the worst sin of uh, our newspaper critics or our literary critics. What's the worst sin? Not saying anything interesting. Being boring. That is the great crime. Not just of critics, but of all writers. Yeah. I, of course, I care more about books than about most, most matters, so... I don't care if the guy writes on a hockey game, this is it's boring, but I care when I pick up the paper and uh, there's a chunk of a, a book about an important critic and he hasn't said anything interesting. He has, that's, uh, that's far, far more important than a little corruption here or there. You know, That's a failure. And is it hard to write interestingly about a, a bad book harder than it is to write interestingly about a great book? Because I think some of the some of the best stuff that I've written is because I'm annoyed that I've wasted my time 
reading yeah. this book, and so I want to yeah. punish them. Maybe punishing somebody who doesn't exist without your... I mean, I don't know. To me, the, the great sin of uh, much journalism and much criticism is um, a lack of engagement by the writer with the subject and the lack of a, a kind of lackadaisical view of things that I believe that makes all books sound a little vaguely alike. Cookie cutter. Yeah. I'm speaking with Robert Fulford, renowned writer, broadcaster, critic, Canadian. Renowned. Lovely. Renowned. Lo- doyen. I was referred to doyen. in the Toronto Star <laughs> as the doyen of Canadian print journalism. That's what it was. The doyen. Doyen, yeah. Toronto Star, just the other day. Another honor. Renowned. Um, you're not a gadfly, though. And you're not a booster. No, no, I hope not. I hope not. But um, I, and I'm not someone who is confident about his writing when he's doing it. I tried to express this once to, to a, someone who's doing a piece about me for a journalism review. I'm a guy who has to get up every morning and write something interesting. And I find it very hard. But you've been doing it pretty well every day for 60 years. So. There you are. That says something about your tenacious will. There you are. Will. Yeah, there you are. I find it quite hard. In fact, it's a process in which I go through. Exhausting hard or? No, 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 but it's hard work, you know. But there's a process that I go through sometimes, uh, which is first of all, you're writing something and you think, this is not interesting. Mm. I'm not very interested. There's nothing I write is going to be interesting. Nothing I write on this stupid subject is going to be interesting. And then slowly you work it some more and work it some more, and then you say, "Oh!" And furthermore, you say, "It's only going to be 300 words anyway." These are very depressing things that critics says. I think uh, some critics say to themselves, and then you keep at it, and then later on you say, "Oh my God, I'm, I'm 200 words over what I'm allowed, and I better have to cut this back." And anyway, ideally, you should be able to get up and say, "I know how to do this kind of thing." I've been doing it in my sleep for. <laughs> That's right. Who said that doubt is the most important <laughs> companion of a writer? That's right. Well, doubt is... I, I've got plenty of that going at all times. I, I've always always had a plentiful supply of that. Just in closing, has there been a, a collection of your... I know your website's got a... I please excuse a, my ignorance, but... Well, uh, I did one book. It's called Crisis at the Victory of Burlesque, which came out in the 60s. long time ago, yeah. Yeah, and then there's another one in the 70s of uh, movie reviews. But you know, then uh, this book here, uh, uh, Accidental City, was in part a collection of articles on Toronto Life magazine. So there have been a number of collections, but I've turned down, not that the publishers are banging on the door, but a few times I've turned down the, the possibility of doing another book because they don't sell many copies, you know. And it's not much fun. Part of the ego, or? Well, it's just painful. Especially seeing them in the remainder bin, I suppose. Yeah, well, the remainder bin is some of the best books are in the remainder bins but, but no it's not, that's not depressing what's depressing is statements come from the publisher saying you still owe us uh, on your book on your book, on your book that we, we gave you an advance on 15 years ago it's coming home to roost final question and that is well it's a two parter you've mentioned Edmund Wilson and James Wood any other critics that uh, you might recommend to the listeners, number one, perhaps a, a brief explanation of why, and anything that any of those critics have said that may have directed your efforts over the years? 
Lionel Trilling was someone who, who mattered a great deal to me, and I think still does. I still read him from time to time. He has a few followers left who keep bringing out his books. Leon Weaseltier edited a book called The Moral Obligation to be Intelligent. And that was uh, Weaseltier's collection of Trilling articles that appeared a few years ago. He was a great critic Trilling. And now we know from his journals that he had more doubt than any 16 other people you know. However, that's another problem. He wrote wonderful, wonderful, solid material with a base of seriousness. He, above all, I think probably told me that if something isn't at stake in this book, then it's not a book you need to take seriously. I think he certainly conveyed that to me. I never knew him. Uh, I, I once spent an afternoon with him, but otherwise I, I knew him only as someone I read and talked about endlessly. He's vanished from universities now. It's hard to believe it, but he was the king of Columbia. And today, I might be some book list in Columbia that carries his name now. But the era of theory has wiped out all those people. As for Edmund Wilson, he would never be taken seriously. I don't think you could, you could get away with even quoting him in a paper in a graduate school or in a, in a university. These people are gone for now, or maybe forever. Well, let's hope not. Another guy is the prince of newspaper critics, A.J. Liebling. <laughs> Seems like every six months someone does a Liebling book. Yeah. And all his whole life he never had one book sell properly, never made money. I have all his first editions, and I don't think there's one book among them you could say, oh yeah, that's the one that made the money. It never happened after his life either. He died 25 years ago. He's someone you'd recommend? I think so. He doesn't write fiction. It's all journalism. Criticism or journalism? It's journalism deeply infused with his personality, whether he writes about war, press, boxing, or characters. He had several characters wrote about one man in particular was a kind of tout whom he followed wrote about all the time. Liebling was a great journalist. I remember there's a, there's a woman who said to me, I would never watch a boxing match for money. I would not accept a fee to watch a, a boxing match. But on the other hand, I would, I would never dream of not reading Liebling's books about boxing or his articles about boxing. Mm -hmm. That's how good he was. He's also said once, I can write faster than anyone who can write better, and I can write better than anyone who can write faster. He was, he was a very funny guy. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts about the critic and for getting up every day for the last <laughs> 50 years and, uh, and feeding the doubt. It's 100 now. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again. Thank you.